We need the presence of God in our lives. Now more than ever, we need the presence of God in our lives. We need the presence of God in our, in our services. And, and, and we can feel what we felt this morning, but I've got to believe there's more. I've got to believe there's a presence of God that can come in and that, that when the presence of God is here, people weep, people's hearts are broken, open. God's able to deal with issues in our lives. People were healed. And, and we've just got to continue to pray, begin to pray for the presence of God in this place and in, in our lives because what we have in our own ability cannot get the job done. And we're going to see again this morning that God did not intend for us to do this job and to, to live and to accomplish His will in our own strength or in our own, even in our own programs. Programs are great and church is great. Buildings are great and the programs we have are great. But without the presence of God, I remember Moses said when God was upset at Israel because they wouldn't, they wouldn't enter the promised land. And God says, well, they're going to say, well, they changed their mind. They repented and said, well, we're going to go in now. And God says, well, you can go, but I'm not going with you. And Moses said, if you're not going, I'm not going to God. She says, because what makes us different from every other nation is your presence with us. And don't ever forget what makes the church different from everything else that's going on in the world, from every religion that's in the world, is the presence of God. And it's very tempting to try to do God's business without His presence. And we can't. We're going to see again this morning, Jesus said that you can't do that. So as we get into God's Word, let's pray. Father, we thank You for this brief time that we've had of worship and being in Your presence. And we know that there's so much more. And so we ask You, Father, to lead us because we don't know how to go. Lead us, teach us, bring us, draw us into Your presence, Father. Put in our hearts a hunger and a desire for your presence. And I pray especially, Father, for people that are here this morning and within the sound of my voice that have never tasted that presence. Father, refresh them. Give them that taste. Give them that appetizer, that whiff, that odor of the presence of God that will create in them a hunger and a thirst for more. All of us, Father. And now we turn to word. Return to the word that you have given to your church to equip us, to strengthen us, to feed on it, to grow, to direct us, to lead us, to reveal who you are and who we are and what you've called us to be and made us to be. And so, Father, as we open this sacred word together, we ask the Holy Spirit to breathe on this word the breath of life. Breathe it into our hearts, O God, that it may not just be understanding that we get. It may just not be information, but it may change our lives. Deposit the seed of God's word by the Holy Spirit down deep in our hearts today that it may grow and produce a harvest 30, 60, and 100-fold, not just in our lives, but through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Open your Bibles with me to um, John chapter 16. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been talking this whole year about why we're here. And we're going to talk at the beginning of the year about vision for the church, and we've been spending some time as leadership in this church kind of recasting the vision. It hasn't changed, it's just we're recasting it in, in, in more contemporary terms and, and making sure that everything we're doing is supporting that vision somehow, and if it's not, then we're going to get rid of it because we only have business doing what supports and enhances why we're here. So we've been looking at why are we here as a church? Why are you here as an individual? Why am I here? Why are we on the earth? Why did God save us and then not just take us home with Him? Because this is the only place you can get in trouble. You're not going to get in trouble in heaven. 
You can't be tempted to eat something or drink something you shouldn't. You can't be tempted to watch something you shouldn't. You can't be tempted to do something you couldn't in heaven because there's no temptation in heaven. This is the only place Satan has access at you. And he is the tempter. So why would God leave us here if he loves us so much? Because God also loves those that haven't come to Christ yet. God has a purpose and it's to grow and expand the kingdom of God. And that's why we're here and we've seen that he cannot do that without us. And so we've looked at what Jesus said to his disciples just before he departed. He said, go into all the world. This is why you're here. This is why I've left you. This is why the church exists. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And then we saw, we've looked at what the gospel means, that it means good news, and we're not going to go back over that. We've looked a little bit of what go means, and we may spend some more time looking at last year at just this little two-letter word, go. But it's what's not in that word that's so important. He doesn't say come back. He doesn't say count the cost. He doesn't say stay where you are. He says go into all the world and preach the gospel. But what we're looking at right now is what does it mean to preach the gospel? And we need to look at that because the word preach implies certain things to us. People think of preacher or preaching or a preacher as somebody doing what I'm doing right now. Somebody standing in a pulpit or somebody on television or maybe somebody down on a street corner with a bullhorn saying the world's coming to an end, get saved or you're all going to hell or whatever it is. But the word preach means so much more than that. And if we don't understand that, it's very easy to read this and say, well, I'm not a preacher, so I guess I'm not supposed to do that. But you are a preacher. And what we're going to learn again today is you already are preaching. The question is, what are you preaching? We've looked at the word preach. The word preach is a Greek word that means, refers to a herald, H-E-R-A-L-D. Hark the herald angels sing. It's what the, the angels did when they announced the coming of the Messiah. And the word herald we looked at is a word that is what in the old days it doesn't happen so much today, but when a dignitary, a king or some magistrate or some important person was going to come into a community, they sent heralds ahead of them to announce their coming so people would be prepared to receive the king and to honor him or to listen to what was going to be said. So we saw that that word implies that somebody was sent by somebody with the authority to send them. And when that herald went and announced the king's coming, he spoke with the king's authority to announce what the king was going to do. And we saw that we've been sent. That's what Jesus is doing in this great commission, is he is sending us, and he's sending us with his authority. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, therefore you go and make disciples of all nations. Of all, of all nations. So he's, the authority that he's been given, he's given to the church, which is his body, and it's been given for a purpose, because authority is only ever given to carry out a purpose. In fact, the authority that he was given was to carry out a purpose, because I think it's in 1 Corinthians 15, when all this whole thing is wrapped up, Jesus turns and hands that authority back to his Father, from which he received it, because then the task will have been completed. But it's not done yet. So the Father gave the authority to Jesus, and Jesus has given that same authority to the church, but that authority is only for the purpose of going into all the world and making disciples of all nations, of preaching the gospel. So therefore, we've seen that we've been sent, and we've been sent with his authority. We looked in Romans chapter 10, and we saw the process of salvation. 
In order to to be saved, they have to call upon the name of the Lord. We saw that the word call upon means to appeal to, rely on, not just say a name, blurt out a name, but it means to put your confidence in and dependence upon, to appeal to somebody to save you or rescue you. But then we saw that how can they call upon somebody that they don't believe exists or won't believe responds? And how are they going to believe unless they hear the word? And how are they going to hear the word unless somebody tells them? And how are somebody going to tell them? And here it is again, unless they're sent. And then we looked at the amazing story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. We saw this worked out because here's a Gentile, a Roman officer, crying out to God, not even knowing what he's crying out for. And God sends an angel to speak to him and to appeal to him. And the angel comes to him in, 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 in Caesarea and says, there's a man in Joppa who can tell you what you need to hear. Go send for him. And while Cornelius was sending for this man, Peter, <clears throat> the apostle Peter, God spoke to Peter in, through a vision and through the Holy Spirit saying, there's a man coming to call on you, go with him. And when you go, you're going to take this message to the Gentiles. And so Peter comes and now goes to Cornelius and says, I don't know why I'm here, but an angel came and t- or a spirit of God told me to come and tell why am I here? And Cornelius says, you're here to speak words to me and I don't know what they are. And we looked at this amazing fact. Here you've got God supernaturally sending an angel to speak to Cornelius, God supernaturally giving a vision and having the Holy Spirit speak to Peter so that Peter can come and speak words to Cornelius. Why didn't the angel just tell him the words? Why didn't the Holy Spirit just come and tell him the words? Because there's a part God has to play and there's a part we have to play. And we cannot do God's part and God cannot do our part. So both of us are essential in this process of salvation. You can't get anybody saved because it requires a work inside that only the Holy Spirit can do. But God can't speak to them because they can't hear His words. And faith comes by hearing and hearing hearing by the Word of God. So it's both God at work and us at work. And God's willing. He's able and He's ready to do it. He's waiting for us to get out of our blue chairs and go do our part because unless we do our part it can't happen in people's lives and it's we're talking not about whether they're going to be prosperous in this life we're not talking about whether they're going to enjoy their life we're not even talking about whether they're going to get healed we're talking about where they're going to spend eternity and that weighs heavily on God's heart we'll see that more clearly this morning so we've been looking at in in chapter 1 Jesus' last instruction to his disciples preparing them. He's now been crucified, raised from the dead, and he's about to ascend into heaven, not to come back until we see him come back. And the last instructions he gives to his disciples, he says, I've taught you, I've trained you, but you're not to do anything yet until you've been endued with power from on high. And he goes on and explains to them, until you are baptized with the Holy Spirit and power, not many days from now. And then down in verse 8 he says, and then you shall be witnesses of me. And see, we've misconstrued that. We thought that what the commission is, is that we're to go and witness. And that's part of it. But that's a very small part of it. No, Jesus didn't say go and witness. He said go and be witnesses. We saw last week that that word witness is a noun, not a verb. So what we're supposed to be is we're supposed to be a witness of Him. It's something we're to become. When then we looked over in John chapter 14 and we saw a wonderful example because we saw that Jesus was a witness of his Father. 
Philip says to him, Lord, it's enough if you show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, Philip, don't you understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, because it's the, I've only ever, everything I've said has only been what I heard my Father said. The works that I speak to you, I didn't speak on my own, but it was the Father in me. Then we saw this interesting term. He says, it was the Father in me doing the works. So Jesus is saying that everything I did and everything I said was my Father living in me doing those works and saying those words. What Jesus is saying is, I was never a witness of myself. I was a witness of my Father to the point where Jesus said, if you want to know what my Father's like, just look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we looked at that because that's a perfect example of what it means to be a witness of something. Talked to you last week about, as you know, I was a lawyer. A lawyer in a court case has to present evidence, and the principal type of evidence is to present witnesses. And those witnesses give testimony of something that's happened to them or that they've seen or experienced. And so we are to be witnesses of what, who Christ is in us and what He has done for us, and that's the evidence of what He's like. And it's important to understand that difference, otherwise we can do witnessing, you know, from 9 to 11 on Saturday morning, walking the streets, and the rest of the, work, rest of the week we can live our life the way we want to. But the problem is people, and you know this because you do and I do it, we, we pay more attention to what people are like than what they say. Someone comes to me and says, Pastor, you know, I'm just, you know, I, I just love you. I love the church. I love this, everything. That's wonderful. I'm grateful to hear that. But I'm going to watch what you do. I'm going to watch what you do. People, you know, I, people tell me something they're going to do, and I say, thank you very much, but I want to watch and see whether they do it. Because then I know whether I can trust them or not. I don't trust people just because they say something. I watch what they do. And people watch us. I told you the story last week about the senior partner's daughter out in Oklahoma when I was working out there in a law firm. And she pulled me aside one time and says, I, what, what do you have that I don't have? And I began to understand what she was saying is she saw something in my life because of the challenges we were going through and I guess how we were handling it. I didn't even know what she saw. I just know it wasn't me that she saw. It was Jesus he saw at work in me. And we should hear those stories all the time. So that's what we've been looking at. And so, and, and we're, we're now we're going to take a look, um, in, or in John chapter 16, is that where I told you to turn? Good, well you turn to the right place. John 15 verses through 17. All the things that the Father has are mine. We're talking about Him being a witness. Therefore I said that He will take of mine and declare it to you. In a little while you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me because I go to the Father. And some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this he says to us? A little while you will see me, and again a little while you will not see me because I go to the Father. What he's going to go on and say, I should have included more scriptures in here. What he's going to go on to say is, Because I'm going to go to the Father, I'm going to ask him, and he's going to send to you a helper who has been with you. He was with him in him, Jesus. But now he's going to be in you. So Jesus, here's a progression here. Jesus is telling them that I, my life that I have lived before you has not been a testimony of me. 
it's been a testimony of what my father's like. If you've seen me, you've seen my father. And we learned of this last week. It was not because Jesus imitated his father. It was not because Jesus spent time in prayer and said, okay, I see what you're like today. I see what you want to do today. Thank you, Father. Now I remember what to do. And now he went out and imitated what he saw his father doing. Because if we don't understand this difference, we're going to think that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to read our Bible. Okay, Jesus loved people. Jesus forgave. Jesus prayed for people. Jesus... Now, okay, now let's see. I've got to go do that too. A number of years ago, there was this whole movement called What Would Jesus Do? And I mentioned it last week. People wore t-shirts, you know, bumper stickers, bracelets. Nothing wrong with that except that it misses the mark. Because what would Jesus do means I'm going to see what Jesus did and I'm going to imitate him. The problem is there's no power to imitate him. Jesus didn't imitate his father. The key was Jesus said it was the father in me doing those works. So Jesus is saying the reason I was a perfect witness of my Father is He lived in me and He lived through me and He did His will in me and He did His will through me. It was His ability, His love, His grace, His wisdom, His power, His power in me flowing out of me because He was the one that was living in me. Now He's about to leave and He's telling His disciples there to go into all the world and to be a witness into all the world and He's telling them you're going to have to do this the same way I did it. It's now got to be the Father living in you the same way He was living in me and the way He lived in Jesus was the Holy Spirit's presence. The Spirit of God's presence in Him was what enabled Him to do what He did. Jesus walked on this earth for three, 30 years Grew up as a boy, was born as a baby, grew up as a young boy, learned in the temple, learned in the synagogue who he was through the scriptures, just as you and I have to discover who we are through the scriptures. And from the time he was born until he was 30 years old, he did no miracles. There was nothing particularly unusual about him except he was obviously never sinned. He was a righteous, good young boy. But I know that because if he had done amazing things at 12, if he'd walked on water at 15, if he'd raised the dead in his village at 22, when he came back after being filled with the Spirit, and they would not have marveled at him because they would have seen him do it all the way growing up. He did no mighty miracles until he was baptized in the Jordan River. And Luke's account in 3 and Matthew's account says... And the Spirit of God came down and dwelt in him. And it says, And he went forth led by the Spirit, and the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. When he came back, it says, And he returned in the power of the Spirit. Never talks about him in walking in power until that moment. Because see, Jesus could have come as the second person of the Godhead and performed all those miracles and then been raised into heaven. But what would that have done for us? What, what, what he demonstrated for us what we're to do and what we're to be. So he did those miracles by the... He did them. The Father in him did those miracles and the Father was in him by the presence of of the Holy Spirit. And that's why in John he says to them, He has been with you, but He will now be in you. The Helper is coming to fill you. And so over in Acts chapter 1, when he says, Therefore you've got to wait 
in Jerusalem until you're endued with that power from on high. And then in Acts chapter 2, he came. And when he came, everything changed. Peter, who was hiding in fear, Peter, who had denied his Lord in spite of his own determination, in spite of his own confidence in himself, Peter denied his Lord three times to a young girl who couldn't hurt him. And now Peter, after he's filled with the Holy Spirit, is standing boldly telling the religious authorities that he was so afraid of, you crucified the Lord of glory. You cru- To the such power that they cry out and say, what must we do? And that's when you know the Spirit of God's moving. Not just when people raise their hand, not when people say, praise God. When people look at their own lives and say, what do I have to change? What must I do? 3,000 souls were saved that day. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working through somebody. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, now that I've trained you, now that I've taught you, now that I've exhibited all this, now that I've been raised from the dead, it's still not enough. You've got to wait here until you have that same power, that same presence of God in you that's been in me. Because then you can be a witness of me as I have been a witness of my Father. Well, we're going to begin to look now at what is that witness like. To do that, let's go back to, let's go look at some scriptures I've, I've quoted to you, but I want to look at them in Ephesians chapter 3. What is it? What is it? How do you know when God's witnessing through you? How do you know this? We're going to look at a prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, and therefore it's a prayer that we can pray for ourselves, our family, for each other. I pray it for me, for my wife, my children, my church. Pray it for all of us. We're going to start in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. Well, we could dwell on that for a while. To be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. The word might there is a word that means power, the ability of God. It's the Greek word dunamis, which means the ability of God to do things. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory, not according to your ability, not according to your age, not according to your race, not according to your wealth, not according to your background, not according to how long you've been saved, but according to the riches of His glory. Think about that for a moment. How rich is His glory? Heaven is lit up by it. There are no light bulbs in heaven. The sun doesn't shine in heaven because it doesn't need to. Because all of heaven is illuminated by the glory of God that shines out of His face, which is why God told Moses, you can't look at my face and live. Just being in the presence of God, the glory was so powerful that it saturated Moses' skin and his garments. And when he came down off the mountain, people couldn't stand in his presence because that glory had saturated the fabrics of his robe and his skin and was emanating out of that and they couldn't stand. That's just a tiny little hors d'oeuvre of what the glory of God is like. And Paul is saying, according to the riches of his glory, that we would be strengthened with might, with 
God's ability, God's power. How? Through His Spirit in your inner man. So Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus, our prayer for the church at Seekonk, is that God would strengthen us with His might, just as Jesus walked in His might, His ability, His power, that we walk in His might, His ability, in His power. How? Through His Spirit in our inner man. And what is it? Verse 17. And what is that? So that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. Just as Jesus said, the Father in me does the works. Jesus, Paul's prayer is that the Spirit of God in us is the Spirit of Christ. So it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us doing His works. Not us imitating Him, but it's allowing Him in us to do what He wants to do. That's all it is. It's just allowing Him in us to have His way and do what He wants to do. But in order for Him to do what He wants to do, we have to get out of His way. Well, there's hope. Verse 18. Oh, excuse me. The Christ may, verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. Think about that a second. When a, a seed is planted, it's planted in the what? Ground. It's not a trick question. It's planted in the ground. So in order for the tree to grow, or in order for the flowers to grow, or in order for the corn to grow, it has to first of all be planted in the ground. So it has to be grounded. It has to be settled. It can't be blowing all over the place. That be, we be rooted and ground. So we have to be grounded in something. And then once the seed is planted in the... Right. The seed is planted in the ground. What happens? It begins to germinate and it begins to take a root, begins to grow down. And for any thing of any size, a tree of any size or a plant of any size, there's a tap root that goes down first of all. And that tap root does two things. First of all, it goes down to where there's a greater source of water and nutrition. And the second thing it does for a tree is it now holds that in place. Uh, this spring, we were, we were, actually this summer, we were away and I saw uh, uh, that there were terrible thunderstorms came through this area. Violent thunderstorms in the process, like 10 or 20 minutes. And there was a scene on the, on the weather channel, which I saw where over, somewhere on the east on the west side of, the, of, the, of, of uh, Narragansett Bay, Cranston or Warwick over there somewhere, there was a tree that had come up in someone's yard and it had pulled the whole yard up. Remember seeing that? I mean, it's amazing. That tree, but there were no roots going down deep. The roots of that tree had gone out, but they obviously had not gone down deep because they took the topsoil with it. So they took with it what it was rooted in. And I guess the question is, what are we rooted in? If that tree had been rooted where it was supposed to be, it would never have blown over in that wind. So to be rooted properly means whatever storms of life come, you may bend with it, but you won't be uprooted. And so it's rooted and grounded in what? In love. Oh, 
So somehow love's important here. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts, that we may be rooted and grounded in love. Let's look at the next verse. And may be able to comprehend, understand, grasp with all the saints what is the width, what is the length, what is the depth, and what is the height, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. He's saying my prayer for the church is that we be strengthened with God's ability so that we might come to understand that we are rooted and grounded in His love for us. Not in faith, that's important. Not in righteousness, that's important. Not in truth, that's important. But above everything else, Paul's heart is for us to know that we are rooted and grounded above everything else in love, God's love for us. And then that we might come to know something, that we might come to know the extent, the breadth and length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Now wait a minute, how can you know something that passes knowing? That's what it says, that we could know the love of Christ that you can't know. Maybe it's something different on this side. That you can, no, it says the same thing. That you can know the love of Christ that you can't know. Well, obviously, there's truth in this. So what he's saying is that you can come to know something that you can't grasp with your own knowledge. That means it has to be revealed to you. It has to be shown to you. It has to be demonstrated to you. And one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit living in us is to bring to us a revelation of God's love first of all for you so that you're rooted and grounded in His love for you everything we receive from God I know we've learned to receive it by faith but it's faith working through love faith really is just knowing what God's like knowing God's love for you God's character you that His love holds nothing back that His love doesn't have limits and boundaries to it that His love that's what Romans 8.32 says that, that, that if he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, why would we think he would withhold anything else from us? Romans chapter 5 says he demonstrated this love for us, and that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, he gave his son's life for us. So Romans 8.32 says, then why would we think if he loves us to that extent, he would hold anything back? That's why at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor principality nor power nor height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, or anything that's ever been created can ever separate me. I'm convinced of it. From the love of God. From the love of God. From the love of God. What got him through every, every distraction he went through, what got Paul without being moved through every persecution, every, every beating, every, everything he went through, was he knew that God loved him, and nothing could shake that love from him. God wants us rooted and grounded in that love and He sent His Spirit to live in us, first of all, to strengthen us in our inner man so that you can receive that love He has for you. Because it goes beyond your understanding. It goes beyond your understanding. 
It goes beyond our understanding. Well, there's more. Verse 19, And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, look at this, that you may be filled up, I mean, that you may be, you, say me, He's talking to you, that you may be, that I may be filled up, filled up with all the fullness of God. God's not just sitting in heaven looking down at us saying, well, I hope you guys make it. I'm praying for you. I sent Jesus, I've given you my word. I'm down there with the Holy Spirit's out there. I really hope you make it. God wants to fill you with all of His fullness. Now remember what Jesus said to His disciples. If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Because it's the Father dwelling in Me that did the, did the works. And now Jesus has said to His disciples, you need to wait in Jerusalem I've paid for your sins. You've been made the righteousness of God. In John's gospel, it says he'd already breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But he's talking about something more than just receiving Him. He's talking about being filled with Him. Baptized in Him. Which means saturated with Him. So Jesus is saying, just as the Father in me did the works... So I'm going to ask the Father, because I've gone to heaven, I'm going to, He's going to send the Holy Spirit, and He's going to come. His Spirit, God's presence, is going to be in you, and God wants to fill you with all of His fullness by the Holy Spirit living in us. That's why Jesus said, don't move out of Jerusalem because you're not yet equipped to do what I've called you to do. What I've called you to do is not to go witness for me. You can do that by just reading a tract. I've called you to live a life to be a witness of me. You can't do this by reading some tract. You can't do this by the wristband that says, what would I do? You can only do this if God's living in you to the same extent He's lived in me. Because it's God in me that did the works It's got to be God in you and me doing the works. And here's God's promise that we would be filled with all of the fullness of God. This is why the church can't do the job with just the programs we come up with. They're nice, they're good, but we've got to have the fullness of God in our lives individually. We can't just come in here for the fullness of God and then leave. We've got to bring that fullness in here. But we all bring that fullness in here. There'll be an atmosphere in here that will be saturated with the presence of God. And you want to get a sample of what it was, can be like? Just read in Second Chronicles, I think it is, where, or Samuel, where they dedicated the temple of Solomon and the presence of God rolled in that temple and they couldn't stand to minister because of the power of the presence of God. And they weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. That was just Him honoring the presence of the honor that they were giving Him. All right, go to the next verse. This seems impossible, but look at this. Because it's not you. See, we tend to look at what's supposed to happen and we look at our ability. Oh, I, I, can't, I could never do that. I could never be like Jesus. I could never do the things Jesus done. I've tried. I've prayed for people and nothing happened. I've done this and nothing happened. But look at the first three words. Now unto Him. 
It doesn't say now unto you. It doesn't say now unto me. It says now unto him who is able. This is... This verse, Paul's prayers, this is how this can happen. This is where my confidence is, Ephesians. This is where my confidence is, FCC. Not that you're able, not that your pastor is able, not that our staff is able, not that our elders are able, not that our our teachers are able, not that any of us are able, but my confidence is he's able. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly. Abundantly. That's not good English, but it's good Bible. <laughs> Exceedingly abundantly. In Greek, that means superabound. So that takes an abundance and then multiplies it. Now we're talking about what God's able to do, not what you're able to do and what I'm able to do. And the church has tried to do what it's called to do in our own power, in our own program. And Jesus never expected us, never told us to do that. He said, wait until you have that power. Who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above, above all that we can ask or think. So when you come to the end of what you can think and what you can ask, that's where God's ability kicks in. When you think you can do something, when you think you can witness, when you think you can pray, when you think you can do something, God's power is not in that yet. His power starts when you run out. So run out. (laughs) I love people say, I can't do it anymore, Pastor. Great, you're in the right spot. And there are times, some of us, God's got to just let us run and run and run and run and run. Some of us, we have got to bang our head into the walls over and over and over again. Some of us, yeah, but I'm going to try again. I'm going to do it again. And God's just got to wait, fold his arms. I can wait longer than you can. Until we finally come to the end of what we think we can do. And that's the beginning where God can begin to take over. Boy, the sooner we come to that, the easier life is. According to What? What's God able to do exceedingly abundantly according to the power that comes down out of heaven? According to the power that God pours forth out of heaven? No. According to the power that works in us. Now, when we read the first few words now to him who is able... We're able to talk about what God's able to do. We're able to talk about God's... Remember, just think about what God's able to do by just looking at what God has done. This entire existence was created by just let there be. Just let there be. I've been reading lately Jesus' examples of healing people. And just what did He actually do? You don't see Him pray a lot for people. He just says, go and be it done according to you believed. Let it be done as you said. Receive your sight. He, he didn't yell and scream and spit and jump up and down. He released the power. The same way that his father released the creative power of God. Let there be light. Separate the light from the darkness. That's what he's able to do. That's what he's able to do. So we can look at what he's able to do and say, wow, look what God's able to do. But the word able is the exact same Greek word that's the word power in the end of that, according to the power that works in us. So God's ability is the same ability that's in us. 
I want, I, want to, I want you to think about that a moment. The ability that he's talking about, the power that he's talking about that's in you if you're in Christ. That power is the same ability that God has. It's God's ability in you. Oh, I, but I can't do this. That's right, you can't. But the question is, can God in you do it? See, Paul learned this secret. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, I can do all things through Christ who lives in me. Now, remember what God wants to live in us to do. He wants to demonstrate the breadth and length and height and depth so that others will know the love of Christ by seeing that love, Him allowing Him to live that love in us. Because what we're going to begin to look at now is we're going to begin to look at what we talked about is Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was a perfect witness of His Father. And we've been called to be a witness of Him. So we're going to look at what is it about the Father that Jesus witnessed. What aspects, what characteristics... What about the Father did the Father want to reveal about Himself through Jesus' life? Because that's going to give us an insight of what Jesus wants us, wants to be able to live His life in us and show through us. What He wants to be a witness, us to be a witness of, allow Him to be a witness through our lives. Remember, it's not us doing it through His strength. It's allowing Him to do us in us and through us. You all clear on that difference? Alright, to do this, we're going to look now at what, what is it that Jesus did. Now, Jesus said in, in John chapter 14, when He's talking to Philip, He said, it's the Father, he, when He says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He says, don't you know that, that, that I, never did any, I never said anything. The words that I spoke were the Father's, I didn't speak on my own authority. But then He said, it was the Father in Me that did the works. He later said, if you don't believe me, believe because of the works themselves. So Jesus' witness, listen carefully, Jesus' witness of the Father's nature was in the works that, the, that He did. The works that the Father did in Him. So we're going to take a look at some of these works to give us a clue because if Jesus was a witness of His Father and we're to be a witness of Jesus, then we're going to be a witness of the Father because Jesus was a perfect witness of the Father. We follow that? Okay. All right. Let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 9. And it's important to spend the time laying this foundation because religion teaches you just the opposite. Religion teaches you that God came to earth in Jesus and He performed all these miracles and did all these things to prove that He was the Son of God. And then the disciples, He gave the same power to them to do those things because when He left, until the Word came. And when the Word of God was given then and the last apostle died, then all that special gifting and that special anointing died with them because we now had the Word of God and we, and we didn't need all of that. Well, I wonder why Paul prayed to the Ephesians that they would receive that power because they weren't apostles. They weren't, they weren't Peter and John, Matthew. They weren't the apostles. They were just church folks like you and me. 
But he prayed for that power to operate in them. And nowhere have I ever found in my study of the New Testament does anywhere does it say that that power and that authority and that, that presence of the Spirit was withdrawn. So that's man's effort to explain why they don't see the results. Because when the Word says one thing and we're experiencing something else, we have two choices. We can either reinterpret the Word to explain our own experience, or we can say, why is my experience not lining up with the Word? The Word's right, somewhere is something wrong with me, with what I'm thinking and what I'm believing. So we're going to go on that tact. Okay. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. We're looking at what Jesus did. How did the Father exhibit through Him? And Jesus went about in all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease among the people. Now let's go back to the bit. Jesus went about in all the cities and villages. I was kind of raised, I wasn't kind of raised in church, I was raised in church. Went through Sunday school. I don't know if any of the people that I was in church with were saved, I know I wasn't. But I was taught Bible stories about what Jesus did and how He healed different people. And I got the impression that He, you know, He did a few miracles. And He did those miracles to prove that He was the Son of God. But this verse, and there's another verse in, 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 in chapter 4 that says basically the same thing. Jesus went about in all the cities and villages. The Greek word for went about, Greek is interesting language. For those of you that, because I've had somebody ask me this, the, the, the reason I keep referring to the Greek is the New Testament was written in Greek. And the amazing thing about Greek is that it is much more precise than English. Whereas we have like three basic tenses, they have like six. And they can break down individual meanings. And this is a good example of that. This word went about is a word that is, and you don't need to remember all this, is in the imperfect, imperfect tense. And in the Greek, the imperfect tense, the way this is used, refers to something that happened in the past, but then continued on. Or one of the commentaries I read says, is a normal or a habitual practice. So we can read this this way. It was Jesus' practice to go about in all the cities. It was Jesus' habit. Now, if it's His practice and His habit, it's His way of life. And we're talking about being a witness is not just an isolated event that you may do several times or, you know, a number of times, but it's the way you conduct your life, it's the way you conduct your affairs, and that's what that's saying. Jesus' practice, His habit of life, His normal way of operation, His MO, (laughs) was to go about in all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching, that's what we're learning about, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news, heralding, announcing the gospel of the kingdom. So his practice was to go into all the cities and villages, to go into their synagogues, and to teach them what the word of God said, what he was coming to do. And then he was to declare to them 
the good news of the kingdom. And look at the third thing he did as a matter of habit. And healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now why is that important? Because remember, this is God in him demonstrating through him what God is like, what matters to him, what his character is like, what his nature is like, what his will is like. Remember Peter, Jesus said to, Peter, uh, to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, we're looking at him. And his practice was to teach in the synagogue. His practice was to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. And his practice was to heal the sick and to deliver suffering people. And that's what we're going to begin to look at. Because I was taught in church that God cares about our soul because that's eternal, but the natural things of life, suffering in our life, in our bodies, suffering in our, in, our, in our families and all that, really, that's not so important to God because all God really cares about is heaven. The root of that teaching goes back to a heresy called Gnosticism, which is a Greek te- philosophy which basically taught that the things of, lo- of natural material things were really of a lower grade of value. And clearly, if you've got to choose between going to heaven and being physically healed, obviously what's more eternally valuable is you go to heaven. But where does it say you've got to choose? Because that tells me we've got a God that only piecemeals things out. So, well, let's see, let's look at your soul. Well, obviously the important thing is that your soul is blessed and your spirit is going to heaven, so that's what I'll give you. But the other things you need, nah, you know, you just fend on that for your own. But what about Romans 8.32, that he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also together with him freely give us all things? What about Jesus? Have you seen me? You've seen the Father. What did Jesus do? Did he look at people that were physically suffering? Did he say, look, this is not what's important? The man that was lowered down, the paralytic that was lowered down, Jesus starts out by saying, you know, your sins are forgiven you. Then why didn't he stop there? But then he said, get up and walk, and he healed his body. So what's this all about? What are you saying, Pastor? We're talking about what Jesus demonstrated, what the Father in Jesus demonstrated was His compassion for people, His caring for people, for every area of their lives. And what do people need to know about God more than anything else? What is it He said we're to be rooted and grounded in? What has He said that the Spirit of God has been given unto us to strengthen us that we may have a revelation of? the height and depth and breadth and length of the love of Christ that's for the world, the hurting people. Verse 36. He saw the multitudes and he was moved to prove something to them that he was the Son of God. Because they were weird. That's not what it says. What was he moved by? compassion for them. He wasn't trying to prove anything. First of all, you'd only need to do it a couple of times to prove it. If Jesus was coming to perform those miracles, to heal the sick, to do those dramatic things, just to prove He was the Messiah, He would only need to do it a few times. Why would He need to heal an entire multitude? 
Why would he need to minister to people that never could tell anybody? Why did he keep telling people, don't tell anybody? Was it reverse psychology? Many times Jesus said, when Lazarus' daughter was, Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, he said, don't go tell anybody. Others, he said, don't, is that reverse psychology? Because they went out and told them. Well, reverse psychology is lying. That's manipulation. And God cannot lie and God will not manipulate because that's lying. When, so when Jesus said, don't tell anybody, he meant don't tell anybody. On a little bit of a side, why would he do that? Because one of Jesus' biggest problems was crowd control. He's trying to get somewhere and the crowds thronged around him. And of course, you've got people being dramatically healed. That's going to attract a huge crowd because they didn't have to debate, would I, should I ask Jesus to heal me or should I go to Rhode Island Hospital? Should I go to the doctor or should I pray and trust God? They had no choice. There was no Rhode Island Hospital. There was no Miriam. There was no specialist. There was no oncologist. There was nothing. So when the word comes that there's somebody that's healing the sick, people thronged around him. So Jesus had a crowd control problem, which is why he would tell them in many cases, don't tell anybody. So that's not a very good way to advertise that you're the Son of God, if indeed... And by the way, he had a much better way of proving who he was. On the third day when they went to the tomb, he wasn't in there. The greatest proof of who he is, is he's not in that tomb anymore. So what was he doing? He was moved with compassion. And this is where we're heading. This is what I believe God wants the church to see. That God has come to live inside of you and come to live inside of me so that He can exercise His love, His compassion for hurting people whom He brings across our path. That He can demonstrate that not only is He God in heaven and the judge of all mankind, but He loves them and He can prove His love to them by ministering to their physical needs, whether it's healing or whatever the area is, that he cares about people. And the church has gotten so far off on political issues and doctrines and things that are right and wrong and the things we've done have not been out of love and out of compassion. Instead, we're trying to defend God and God has never told us to defend Him. In fact, that's Eve's mistake that's how she was deceived. Is she tried to defend God and God never told her to defend Him. He said, just obey me. And what is the one commandment Jesus has given to the church? That we shall love one another as I have loved you. It's all about love. But it's not love in my strength. It's not love in my ability. It's allowing God's love in me to grow and mature and to give it away, to allow Him in me to love people and to care about people because that's a witness then of what He is like. Jesus saw the multitudes. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. They were lost. They were confused. They were weak because they had no shepherd to guide them. Verse 37, So He said to His disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful. What's the harvest that he sees? It's people that are weary and scattered and lost. 
and his heart is moved for them. The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Here you've got the Son of God looking out over these lost people. How come He didn't save them? How come He didn't go bring them into the kingdom of God? How come He didn't do that? Because He needed laborers to go out and bring them in. Now remember that this is not originally written in chapters and verses. So as we come to the end of chapter 9, we don't now go home and say, we'll come back next week and look at chapter 10. This is a continuation of the story. So chapter 10, uh, verse 38. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. You and I are answers to that prayer. Verse, chapter 10, verse 1. And when He called the twelve disciples to Him, He gave them what? He gave them what? He gave them power or authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. He gave them power or authority to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. And now he goes down, we're not going to look there, but in verse 2 through 4, he, he chooses 12 disciples. And then down in verse 5, we're going to pick up again. And these 12 Jesus sent out. How can they hear without a preacher? And how can the preacher go unless he's sent? Jesus sent them out and commanded them saying, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Don't enter to the city of the Samaritan. That's because their time had not come yet. But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, declare, announce, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember we looked at what a, what a preacher is, what a herald is? They're announcing the coming of a king. They're announcing something that's coming and they've been sent with his authority and he will back up that authority and now he's sending them out as heralds to announce the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. It's come among you. It's not going to come down in the last days. The kingdom of heaven is here. And how are they going to announce that? Verse 8, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. So he taught them. His example was he taught them. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. He demonstrated the kingdom of God by dealing with people's natural needs, demonstrating that God cares about you. He cares about that cancer in your body. He cares that you're in pain. He cares that... One of my favorite verses is in James, is in Peter, where it says that, you know, he says that to cast your care upon Him because He cares for you. Literally in the Greek, it says because it matters to Him concerning you. Isn't that wonderful? It matters to Him concerning you. We talked last week in John chapter 11 where Jesus is standing with Mary and Martha and they're crying over the loss of their brother and, and, and they're confused because they didn't understand and, and Mary, Mar, Martha says, well I understand you know you can raise him from the dead. I understand that you are the, that you're, you know, the last day he's going to be raised from the dead. I know we're going to see him and Jesus is saying, no, no, you don't understand. I'm here to ease your hurt now. I am the resurrection 
and the life. I am. I am. And then as he saw their crying and their hurt, even though he knew he was about to restore their brother to them, he wept for them and with them. Ephesians, excuse me, Hebrews 4 says he's touched with the feelings of our infirmity. God cares about you. He cares about the people you work with, the people that are talking about how difficult their life is and that they've got some relative that's got cancer and they can't get... And the, the, the people around you that are hurting because the devil hates and he's destroying people's lives. And God cares about them. And the God in you and the God in me cares about them and wants to demonstrate to them he loves them and he's real and he's alive and he's here and he wants to demonstrate what he's like in us and through us. He wants us to be his witness of what he's like. And he says, tell them the kingdom of heaven is here. But see, if you just tell them that, why should they believe that? They've heard words before. But when they see the presence of God, the power of God, I'll end with this story this morning. We'll continue along this line next week. But some of you may have heard of and may remember great man of God, great evangelist, T.L. Osborne. T.L. Osborne was the, was, the, was the other generation's version of Reinhard Bunke. For those of you who know who he is. And T.L. Osborne, I heard him speak. He came to our Bible school several times and spoke to us. I remember one time he sat. It was a 15-minute service and they just let him go. And he spoke for two hours. Now, normally you get students listening to somebody for two hours, they're going to get edgy. I looked around at about an hour and 45 minutes, everybody's sitting on their seat listening to these stories. I told a story about when he was first went into the ministry and, 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 and he just, he was, he was, he said, I knew he was called to the mission field. He said, I went over to India. And he was raised in Oklahoma. He was raised in the buckle of the Bible belt. I mean, he was always, you know, whether he was saved or not, you knew the Bible was the word of God. And he goes over there and pulls his Bible out and starts preaching. And he says, this is the Word of God. And they said, no, it's not. This is the Word of God. And he didn't know what to do with that. And then he went to another place and they said, no, the Koran is the Word of God. No, 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 no. You understand, the, the Bible's the Word of God. I know. Well, why do you know it? Well, I was... And they couldn't convince them because they weren't even on the same playing field. And he came home terribly discouraged, depressed, he was ready to quit, basically. He didn't know what to do. He was confused. I think he was up in Seattle, somewhere around there. He was ministering, and he heard about a man who had come to town, and things were happening in his services. Miracles were happening. Blind eyes were opening, and deaf ears, and he said, i got to go there. And he went and sat in the service, and he saw God demonstrate his love and compassion and power. And he said, that's what I've been missing. I'm trying to tell them God's real. And in the United States, maybe that would work. But in India, that's not going to work. They've got to see that God is real. So he went back over. And he held a meeting. And they stood up and opposed him again. He said, well, let's have a contest. And he said, I want everybody that's blind to come up here. And I don't know, about 20 people came up. And he said, can your God heal them? And they said, well, I don't know. We'll try and so they did whatever they, kind of like Elijah's test, calling fire down out of heaven. 
Except this is 20th century stuff. And nothing happened. And he said, all right, I'm going to show you that my God is real and my God cares for you. And he went down and laid hands on them and I don't remember how many it was, but if it was 20 of them, 19 eyes opened immediately. God demonstrated through him that he was real. God wanted through him to prove that he is real, but not just that he's real, that he loves to them, that he cares for their suffering. And we need to have allow God in us to begin to do that work. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you don't believe it because of the words that I speak, believe because of the works that you see him do in me and through me. And then Jesus told his church, the disciples, wait until you're endued with the same power from on high because I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to send the same spirit that's been in me to be in you so that he can, you can go forth in the same power and in the same love that I have gone forth in. And then you will be my witnesses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you've entrusted this amazing responsibility to us. But where you give us responsibility, you give us your ability. And we confess to you, Father, we've been struggling with issues in our own life. We've been struggling with issues in our family. We've been struggling with issues in our workplace and the world around us and trying to do it in our own strength and our own knowledge. And you never called us to do that. You've called us to let you be a witness through us. So, Father, we come to you today to acknowledge that we need to be filled with your Spirit. We need the power of your Holy Spirit in us and in our lives, not just to demonstrate power, but to demonstrate your compassion, to demonstrate your love, the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding. So, Father, today I pray for all of us this morning that you would strengthen us with your spirit in our inner man, that Christ may be able to live his life in us and through us, being rooted and grounded in that love through faith, that we would become to know, together with all the saints, the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding so that we may be filled up with all of your fullness. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Amen.